Would you please kneel with me? Father, we thank you so much that you did not send us a pompous king filled with pride and arrogance, but that you sent us a baby in Bethlehem, and that he was a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. We thank you, Father, that we have a high priest who has known our weaknesses and temptations, every single one of them, and yet without sin. We thank you, Father, that through the blood of your Son, that we are brothers to him and that we are adopted sons of God. We thank you that women and men together in the kingdom of heaven inherit equally all the privileges of son and of sonship. We thank you, Father, that you give us your Holy Spirit who cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, and that this is not for us to be presumptuous. This is not pride on our part, but this is something that we cannot suppress. We thank you, Father, that you have called us through this Psalm 45 to turn our backs on our mothers and fathers to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that the family of God trumps the family of man. We thank you, Father, that we are not citizens of these United States, but that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We thank you that you have given us the freedom to submit to our rulers and to our mothers and fathers and teachers and governors and mayors, knowing that there is a day of accounting when true justice will be revealed and when all the conniving of sinful men will be exposed. We thank you on this Palm Sunday that it was the little children who led in praise. Father, be with us as we grieve the humiliations and indignities and brokenness and death of this life. Comfort those who are afflicted. Give strength to those who doubt. Give repentance to those caught in the thicket of sin. Give faithfulness to those in authority over us. And give power to your word now. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastoral word before I begin preaching. You know, one of the things that you people uh, often say to me or say to one another is that, uh, that you don't think that our church should think that it's better than any other church and that it's um, that we should not um, think of ourselves as better than other churches. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the fact that uh, the vast majority of you never, ever, ever invite anybody to come to church. And I think one of the ways you excuse yourself is you say, well, we're no better than anybody else. We shouldn't think we're better. And so, of course, that's the perfect hiding place for you, never to bother inviting somebody to come to church. But what I want you to understand is, think of having children and not inviting them to church, you know. I would hope that you would pick a church you go to where you would want your children instructed and disciplined and exhorted by that church, right? And then you think about, well, if for your children, why not your neighbors and the people that you work with? I want you to know, if I wasn't the pastor of this church and if I attended this church, 
I would never stop inviting people to this church. <laughs> and there are people actually here because I invited them. Hey, eh, Nick? <laughs> Remember at Assembly Hall that day? Standing, I think it was at the French fry thing. Now, I only bring that up because everywhere Jesus went, there were people who heard the word of God proclaimed because others had invited them to come and hear this man that told him. Remember what the woman at the well said? You know, she'd had seven husbands, right? She was out getting water at the well, and Jesus asked her for some water, put himself in her debt. And then when she went back to town, you remember what she said? Remember, he had exposed her sexual immorality. She went back to town and she said, come, you remember this, come because I've, I've run into this dude who my, my life is an open book in front of him. You can imagine her friends thinking, whoa, I'm not sure that's good. What are you bragging about it for? But listen, if you have a place in Bloomington where you can go and be a sinner and loved, how on earth would we not invite people to come there? That's what she had. She, she was a sinner with Jesus, and he loved her. <laughs> right, right, right? <laughs> All right. So come on, don't be wimps. You know, invite people, eh? Unless, of course, you don't like this church, and then find another church. Eh, 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 okay. All right, I'm back. Would you open up your Bibles? It's fitting, since it's Palm Sunday, for us to read the account of Palm Sunday. In other words, uh, where does it come from, and what is it, and why were those kids up front with those things like, off plants that I've never seen up north. And the account, one of them is found in Matthew 19. Matthew is a disciple of Jesus, and he writes down what happened on this particular day. Um, If you don't know it, this is about a week before Jesus is crucified. And so Jesus lived 30 years as a carpenter, working with his dad probably, Then at 30, he began to teach, to preach, and to call a group of 12 men around him who were then going to, when he died and rose to heaven, they were going to take over the church and begin to lead it. And the men he called, all of them, most of them were truck drivers, uh, long-haul truck drivers. Where's Charlie? Yeah. All right. And they probably walked like that. (laughs) What they really were were fishermen. But there's, it's analogous because you're gone from home for a long period of time. And, uh, and so what's happening now is he's been teaching and preaching and healing and, and working with these men for about two years and 11 months and four, three weeks. And now comes the last week of his life. And it's getting very, very tense. Because the whole time that he has been teaching and preaching, the religious leaders, the pastors, the seminary professors, the Bible scholars have hated his guts. Not all of them. There was a guy named Nicodemus who was a leader, a religious leader. And Nicodemus was so afraid of what the other religious leaders would do that he came to talk to Jesus at night. (laughs) 
So that gives you a feeling about what's going on, that the religious leader that wanted to talk to Jesus had to hide at night to do it. And so it's getting very tense. Jesus, most of the time, has stayed away from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where all the religious leaders are, all right? So he's been up in Bedford, or down in Bedford and up in Martinsville and over in uh, Brazil. But now he's coming to Bloomington, where all the scholars are. And that's the center of the hatred of him. And as he comes to Jerusalem, the city of the kings, where all the religious leaders are, the tension is building. And as he comes into Jerusalem, what's happened about a week beforehand is that he has uh, raised a man from the dead in a village just a couple miles out of Jerusalem, Lazarus. And uh, so he's coming to Jerusalem, the hatred, they've been plotting to kill him, to murder him. He's done unbelievable signs, the people love him. So here's the story as we pick it up. When they, and that means Jesus and all his followers, when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent to, by the way, do you guys realize that David Abbasara, many of you know David Abbasara, all right, his family is from the Mount of Olives. That's where all his relatives are, is on the Mount of Olives. He's Arabic, he's not Jewish, and they all live out on the Mount of Olives. I just thought I'd tell you that. You don't have to pay me for that one. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there with a, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he, that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus is very aware that he is walking 
into the noose that he is now beginning the last week of his life that he will be killed, murdered, conspiracy and murder at the end, and that this is his father's pleasure. He'll pray in the Garden of Eden, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, what thou wilt and not what I, what you want and not what I want. And so as he comes into Jerusalem, it's fitting, since Jerusalem is the city of kings, Jewish city of kings, it's fitting that they would welcome him as a king. And yet even in their welcoming him as a king, it's humble because it's a beast of burden. You know that old stone song? You know, it's nothing pretentious, nothing, uh, nothing, and yet there is honor to Jesus because the people are throwing palm branches, they're trying to keep the dirt from rising up, the dust. They're throwing the palm branches down so that the donkey is going to be walking on greenery and they're putting their cloaks which for them was probably some of the most priceless things, the most expensive things they had, that they had material. They're putting him on the donkey so he can sit on, on material, and, and you know there were no environmental wackos there to keep him from stripping the branches. His branches got stripped, and they put him on the ground in front of him. And as he came in, everybody was like a Final Four, you know, like when Kentucky won and, and Blue went hog wild. Not like worship today, where we have no zeal, no passion, where we're so, so impressed with our own dignity that we give none to God. You ever thought about that? It's so important that you protect your dignity in worship. You would not want to do anything analogous to what happened on Palm Sunday. No, no, no. And so they were completely lost in worshiping Jesus. They saw him. They knew him. They knew him as the lover of their souls. They knew him as the king of kings. They knew he brought justice. And they knew he was coming into the royal city. And so they did what they were supposed to do, which is they welcomed him with a lot of hoopla. Do you see that the, uh, that the, uh, that the police uh, had to use... Uh, not tear gas, pepper gas or something, to subdue the mobs that were flipping the cars after the victory last night in Kentucky. Um, and so when Jesus came into the royal city, they welcomed him like a king. And he rode. He did not walk. He rode. But he rode in, in like a... Uh, it wasn't a Harley. It didn't go and announce itself. It was maybe one of those little things that the DUI guys have to wear around. You know? Like a little Honda 50cc, you know? But he wrote. Right? And the people lost it. There was no dignity. Everybody forgot their dignity. They forgot their clothing, keeping it nice so it didn't have to go to the dry cleaners. They threw it on the donkey, and they threw it on the ground. They stripped the branches, and everybody screamed. Now, they got it right. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One day, every knee will bow. 
And so what does Jesus do? Is Jesus very careful to cultivate his, his, his great dignity? Is he careful to protect this moment when everybody gets it right? Last night I was reading an article that chronicles 24 hours in the life of Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. And as it happened, the day that John F. Kennedy was killed, Lyndon Johnson, on many, many levels, was likely going to be forced to resign as the vice president. And there would not be a single tear on the part of any of the extended Kennedy clan. He was being investigated in ethics probes in Washington, D.C. Life magazine was having an editorial meeting, putting together a bunch of exposés of Johnson and his money. He was suffering indignities in Dallas where he couldn't, where the president had told him to get two of the key Democrats together, and one of them refused to get into the car with the vice president, and the whole national news media was reporting the refusal. And he was hated by the Kennedys. And he was having to travel in his home state and be, 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 be. And so what happened when the president was, was killed is that immediately he became president. The instant the president kills, he becomes president. And then what happened was all of a sudden the, the whole power structures flipped upside down. And immediately what Lyndon Maines Johnson did was make it very clear to the Kennedys. And there were a number of ways that he immediately started getting payback. The woman that swore him in was a woman that they had, he had had great difficulty uh, trying to get her promoted in the federal system. He was very careful to make sure that Jackie was there, her picture when he was sworn in on the plane. It was just, he called up... Uh, the president's brother, uh, within moments of him finding out his brother had been killed, and asked him to, to get the text of the oath so that he could be sworn in. Now, think about this. Think about how you and I would handle it if there were a reversal of power and all of a sudden we were the big guy. He didn't go back to Washington on Air Force Two, and that's how he came. But he went back in Air Force One. Right? Now, does that kind of sound like you? Not not me, but you. (laughs) Sounds like me, you know. I'd probably want to make sure things were done right. After all, I'm the president now, you know. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and for once, he is the one at the center of everybody's attention, and everybody is, is treating him with dignity. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're giving him praise. And Jesus then what? Was he very careful to protect this moment in time when he was receiving the adulation of the people? No! What he did was immediately he went down to like, Sample gates, the administration building, or immediately, and he began tearing everything down. He went directly into the center of Jerusalem, which was the temple. It was the place of their patriotism and their religion, both together. And he took out a whip, and he began to whip the religious leaders and their cronies there. 
and driving them out of the temple. He flipped the tables up. He sent the money flying. And he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And if you look at what they're doing, what they're doing is actually facilitating worship because you didn't need to have doves and you didn't need to have money changed because you'd come from other lands where it wasn't the same money. And so there was a certain legitimacy to what they were doing there. And he just flipped everything upside down. He blew it to smithereens. He comes directly from being on the highway into Jerusalem with everybody worshiping him into the temple and cleans it out. You know, you think about Lyndon Johnson. What he's doing is he's signaling this person and this person and cultivating the pictures, making sure the White House photographer will be there, grabbing everybody he can to come into the cabin of Air Force One so as many important people as possible can be in the... He's immediately creating his cult of power and authority. And so is Jesus. But Jesus is not focused on himself, is he? His father's house is to be a house of prayer. Jesus is always intense about the honor of his father. Can you think of something I could say that would be more opposite than our world today? (laughs) Could you name for me One person you know? Just one. Who's intent for the honor of his father? (laughs) It's a joke. We despise our fathers. And here Jesus is. He cleans out the temple. Now, in the middle of the temple, as he's cleaning out the temple, in the middle of the temple are a bunch of little punks what we call kids, which I really don't like that word, okay? It's just a personal idiosyncrasy. There's a bunch of kids, children, little ones, wee ones. And the children have seen what's gone on as he comes in, and then they see what he does in the temple. And the children, they know the truth. (laughs) And so what do they do? The minute he cleans out the temple, what do they do? Well, if you look at the end of the text, beginning with verse uh, 15, but when the chief priests, well, wait, there's one thing before, and that is that the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So he blows the place up with a whip, violence. Remember that song by Todd Rundgren? Anybody know Todd Rundgren? Good. Do you know the song? Violence, violence. It's the only thing that will make you see sense. Can you imagine that being words to describe Jesus? You know, and and that's what he did. It was violent what he did in the temple. Then... So he first receives their worship, then he goes and blows up their authority, right? With violence, with rebuke, then he heals the people. In other words, guys, this is like, the, this is like a, a, a quadruple double. <laughs> you got the worship, and then you got the cleaning out the temple, and then you have him being compassionate and loving to the suffering. 
And then the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done. That's what they were doing is going around and saying, what wonderful things he's doing. (laughs) No, it's an editorial note. The author is saying they were wonderful things being done. And, 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 and the chief priests and the scribes, and today that would be the senior pastors and the seminary professors, the Bible scholars, all right, saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they became indignant. So you have him receiving the worship of a king as he comes into the royal city. Then you have him cleansing the temple. Then you have him healing the needy. And then you have him receiving the worship of children. And then is when the religious leaders have had it. And you can feel the tension building. Now, why did the religious leaders get upset about that? First, why did they get upset that Jesus was being worshipped and adored and praised? What were they upset about? Well, the whole purpose of having religious leaders is to tell you what's right and to tell you what's wrong, to get you to approve of the good and to reject the evil. And it was very clear to everybody that they had rejected Jesus. Do you understand that? The religious leaders had made it completely clear all through his ministry that he had their disapproval, that they were not to go to that side of the tracks that that was where bad people were who had no ability to discern between good and evil. And so the whole force of the authority of the religious leaders has been brought in condemnation of Jesus, and yet here they all are, commending him, praising him. And there's no more clear repudiation of your religious leaders than when they're saying, don't go there, and the whole world is going there. And so they have said, bad, and the whole world is saying, good. And Matthew says, the wonderful things he'd done. And then God himself says, good, because God heals people when he calls down God's power. If you're a a leader, you don't want the people that are supposed to be following you doing the opposite of what you tell them to do. And that's what was going on. All these people were doing the very opposite of what their religious leaders were telling them to do. And then the little children add their voices. And it does make sense that it would be little children that would drive them right flipping crazed out of their gourd. Because there's something about children that they're easy to dismiss and impossible not to notice. Now, we have a couple of confrontations over children that are recorded in Matthew that I want to read to you. Because they'll give you a feeling for sort of the attitude when children were around Jesus. One of them is in Matthew 19, beginning with verse 13. It says, then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples, so these are Jesus' followers. The disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. 
For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And then in Matthew 18, we read, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest, or who is greater in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so, this is how children were received. Even the disciples said, you know, he doesn't have time for them. You know, they're unimportant. Keep them away. And Jesus said, now, suffer the little children to come unto me. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them. You know something? If nothing else would get you to want people to come into this church, do you know what it is? It's the children. There's not another church in town. Now, not to say that we're better than anybody else. I would never want to say that. That would be so sinful. But there's not another church in town that has children by faith. Children have always been close to the heart of God. Has it ever occurred to you how easy it would be for you to simply, if you were God and needed to have your son die, to just have him show up and die? Why on earth would you have him go through 30 years of working as a carpenter? And why would you ever have him come as a child? The humiliation. I mean, do you know that the Bible says that Jesus learned discipline through the things that he suffered? I think it's the hardest verse in scripture to understand and and even if you decided you were going to go ahead and let him be a child why on earth would you put him in the womb of a woman and have him born i mean even adam escaped that <laughs> and our attitude towards children is well have a couple Because probably at the end of life, it'll make life easier if you have somebody to take care of you. Maybe two, so that if one of them's a rotter, the other one will be decent. If you have a son, at least you'll have a daughter. And so when the kids came around, the little children, the disciples even tried to keep them away. So now, think. Children are not viewed very highly at that time. They had a lot of them. But they were kept away from important people, important occasions. So Jesus comes in. He's welcomed. He's, he's praised. He's adored. He's, they scream. The whole city hears it and says, who is this? And they say, he's a prophet from the poor area. He cleans the temple out. He heals people. And then the children look at what he's doing in the temple, and they're like, yes, you know, and they're partying. You think of our Christmas concert and how the kids will dance in the aisles. Nobody watches them. I mean, you watch them, but the kids know that it's dance time. 
And so they just dance, and that's what was going on. They danced, and they yelled to the glory of, of God. God incarnate in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible tells us that was the point at which the religious leaders were indignant. Right? Why were they indignant with the children? Let me ask you this. When Lyndon Baines Johnson became president and was in Air Force One, did you know that he was, he was uniquely fixated on bringing into that cabin as he was sworn in a whole passel of children and ma- made a point of having the White House photographer take pictures of him being sworn in with a bunch of children? I'm joking. There were no children there. But why not? Linda Bain Johnson at that moment could have, you know, he sent a message out through the clerk, the law clerk of, of the lady judge. You know, the guy said, I don't know where she is. Lyndon Baines Johnson got on the phone and said, find her. <laughs> okay? Linda Johnson could have had as many children on that plane as he wanted. Why did he not have children? Why did Jesus have children? Why do you have children? Why did the religious leaders pick that moment to be indignant? Well, here's the reason. The reason is that no man is commended by having children sing his praises. Do you realize that? It doesn't commend me to have a bunch of children sing my praises. As a matter of fact, it's embarrassing. Think of what people say about a a pastor that they despise. What they say is, well, he's got a bunch of yes men, right? And what they're saying is he has a bunch of undiscerning children around him. It did not honor Jesus to have the children sing his praises. It was humiliating to Jesus. Unless... You're one of those godly who everything is flipped upside down. And you believe that to be a woman and to give birth is actually your highest honor. (laughs) Oh, you guys, if you could see yourselves when I preach to you. It's a trip. I'm glad I'm old enough that I don't quite so much want the praise of the world as I used to. Because it could be quite discouraging. Listen. Mary, all generations will call her blessed. And what did she do? She gave her womb to the Savior. 
It doesn't matter how much the feminists attack that. They can't find anything else to honor her for. And they know they're supposed to. And it is true that God has caused many men and many women to be single and to be childless. But not because it doesn't matter. Only a very, very sick day and age would look at a woman grieving over God not giving her the fruit of the womb and say, what's wrong with you? You have so many options. And yet that's what we do. We despise children. We hide them. We remove them. Their designer decisions, lifestyle choices, they are a choice. We kill them. 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 And if I were to do that for another three years, I would not, I would, I would not stop saying how, how many we kill. What, 45 to 60 million a year by surgical abortion. And that's not chemical, and that's not the pill, and that's not the IUD. And then if they're newborn defectives, like Baby Doe over here 20, 25 years ago, they starved him to death because he was Down syndrome. And he sat in that nursery, and he cried until he died in our own hospital. See, Everett Koop was a surgeon general at the time. He said he had 50 people wanting to adopt Baby Doe here in Bloomington. He told me that. Fifty contacted him. And that's how we look at children. And that's how they looked at him. When children were brought to Jesus, they said, would you get out of here? You're making too much noise. You're, you're, you're an inconvenience. The master has more important than Jesus says. He rebuked them and he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Don't keep them away. He took them in his arms and he blessed them. And when it was the high point of his glory on earth, before he returns, the high point of his glory, the culmination where the wicked religious leaders finally decided to go for it and to oppose him, it was It was the praise of the children of Jesus that caused them to do it. That's the point at which they said they were indignant. And you know, they weren't doing it outside in the streets. The Bible tells us that they were praising him in the temple. That was their turf. God, God is pleased to work through children. And do you know something? When that religious leader who was so fearful of his colleagues' that he came at night, Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus and said, how can I be saved? And Jesus said what to him? Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You don't think of it this way, but what Jesus is saying is, unless a man becomes a child, unless a man goes to the breast and begins to nurse. You know, that's what they always call the church in the lives of Christians, that the church is our nursing mother, and we are her sucklings. 
all through history. That's how it refers to the church. Find some of the most beautiful statements about motherhood in Calvin's Institutes when he's talking about the church. He says, we're never done with her school or her breast until we die about the church. (laughs) And this world thinks that it has something to give women in terms of dignity. It's laughable. You know how to honor women? The way you honor women is you take up their children in your arms and you bless them. Do you know what my dad told me when I went in the ministry? He said to me, learn the names of the children. Why do you think my dad was saying that? Well, <laughs> he was, you know, he, he knew that if I knew the names of the children, I would own the women. I hate to tell you that, but that's the plain truth. One time we had a pastor in our kitchen talking to me, and he was sitting at our butcher block table, and who was it? Uh, was it Taylor or Hannah? It was Hannah. Who was it? Hannah? It was Hannah. Hannah came up, and she colored a little picture, and she handed it to him. And she's standing there, you know, holding up her picture, and he's sitting there, and he just is oblivious. My wife is over there at the counter. I'm sitting here. He's here. And Hannah, Hannah, oh, you don't know Hannah, but, oh, Hannah's giving an offering of love. You know, she's, and he's oblivious. Well, I'm tracking my wife, and I said to this man, I said, you know, Joe Blow, um, Hannah's trying to give you a picture And I think I actually said to him, and if you want her mother to like you, (laughs) you should probably. And so you know what he did? So there's Hannah still holding up her picture. And he turns and he says, oh, thank you, Hannah. And he's off talking again. And that was actually worse than if he'd done nothing. Now, I, I don't think at the time he was married, was he? Yeah, I think that that was part of the problem. He had not yet entered the school of his wife. (laughs) Okay. So what is the application this morning of Palm Sunday, but specifically of the children and the religious leaders hating them and them praising Jesus and Jesus rebuking and receiving the praise of the children rebuking the religious leaders? Well, the application is, It just don't matter what people think about you. It just doesn't matter. What you really want to do is give yourselves to children and watch whether the children like you. What you really want to do is give yourself to God so that he can flip you upside down so that children become the ones that you really want to protect and to love, and to bless, and to hold. Because unless you become, what? Unless you become like little children, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must become a child. And you must forget what the world thinks. Listen, one final thing. One of the defining characteristics of our culture today is that the entire world is given over 
to the fear of man. And I'm using the word man generically. Because actually, today, what you could say about postmoderns is the only thing that matters to postmoderns is whether women give them good press. So really, we're so pathetic today, we don't even fear men. We only fear women. As long as the women think that what we're doing is okay, the men will think what we're doing is okay. And all of us spend our lives trying to cultivate an image that women will approve of. That's the world today. If you don't know that, you're blind, deaf, and dumb. Okay? That's what it means to live in postmodern culture. All right? And if you are controlled by the fear of man, all right, if that's what determines your life, you will never please God. It is impossible to have faith. It is impossible to live a Christian life. It's impossible. And what I always tell you is that I have learned in my life that fear is a very jealous master. <laughs> it does not allow there to be a split personality in you. And you only have two choices, and Scripture is clear about this. You either fear man or you fear God. And after that, everything is just cleanup operations. And so to be born again really means to stop fearing man and to fear God. And the minute you fear God, you know you fear God because you become a child. You're born again. And as a child, all you care about is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the new languages in your heart, it cries out, Abba, Father, not to Bar Senate, or President Barack Obama, not to me, not to your professors, not to your boss, not to your wife, or your girlfriend, or your roommate, but you cry out, Abba, Father, to God. And having cried out, Abba, Father, to God, then you're fearless. I keep saying, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Because you're done with this cloying, sentimentally feminine age we live in. You don't listen to emo music anymore, it's so disgusting. I'm a victim. I hurt, I have pain. This is so utterly disgusting. I mean, who has ever been a victim like Jesus Christ? Who? Can you imagine him listening to emo music just before he goes to bed? You know, because it just makes, it validates his personhood. It's just, listen, people. If you fear God, you're going to stop whining. And you're going to begin to be like little children. And you're going to begin to drink from the church, from the word. You're going to begin to call out Abba, Father. You're going to begin to not tremble when the boss asks to meet with you. Because you know that God is looking at you, and who cares about the boss? If you have it coming, you'll say you're sorry. Because God's watching. Do you understand? It's, it's so, so freeing. Think of who's more free than those little children in the temple.
I mean, come on. You, everybody there knew, knew that it, probably the religious leaders weren't happy about the whips. <laughs> you know? But the kids are celebrating the fact that the temple and all the people that come to worship there are free. Don't, don't live the rest of your life in bondage to your pride. Don't do it. Don't do it. Remember I was talking last week about hat pins. Remember that? The old hat pins, long pieces of steel, very sharp at one end, some sort of gaudy thingamabugger at the other that you could hold on to. And I said that what, what we all need is to get hat pins and give them to our wives. And then have them poke us. <laughs> and all the hot air will just... And we'll lose a couple of inches on our waist. And that's good. But more importantly, all of a sudden we'll realize from dust we've come to dust we'll go. It'll happen like that. And then we'll face God. And so why not become like a little child? You know, remember I started by saying, how can we be so careful to cultivate our own dignity and worship instead of the glory of God? And at the end today, we're going to have a song. And I ask you to give yourself to the song at the end of worship today in a way that causes you to have less dignity. Okay? That's the point of worship, is for God to get the glory and for you to be humbled. Pray and ask God to make you a child. And you'll be free at last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God that you recorded what happened on that day for us so that we can... Look at these little children and say, I want to be a child. I want to be born again. I want to worship Jesus Christ instead of my own pride and my wife's approval. Father, we pray that you will give to us the humility and the meekness and the faith to turn our eyes on Jesus to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.